Assassins, to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So, welcome back to another weekend, my fellow assassins. As always, I hope you had a good week and are getting ready to enjoy the weekend. I'm glad that you uh, decided to spend some of your weekend with me, or if this is sometime in the middle of next week, or sometime down into the future, I'm still glad that you decided to spend some time with the fellow assassins here at the Dark Assassins Podcast. Now, this episode isn't really going to necessarily be specific, uh, like, specific topics, but more, like, in, you know, software development, home labbing, that kind of thing. Like, we're not we're not going to go into, like, you know, multi-processing, multi-threading, uh, equipment for your home lab, things to run in your home lab, that kind of stuff. This is going to kind of be a more of a, a broad scoping episode about um should you actually be a software developer i mean i talk a lot on this podcast of how much i enjoy being a software developer and i think it's great and how everyone should be one but should you actually i mean there's there's definitely like any you know profession there's obviously pros and cons so in this episode we're gonna kind of dive into that um and i'm basically kind of going to give you my thoughts on that after it kind of is weird to say this, but after basically a decade of software development, kind of give you my thoughts, what are the pros, what are the cons, and if you should actually pursue this as a career. But before that, let's get into this week's trivia question. And this week's trivia question is, when did Apple transition from PowerPC to Intel? So when did Apple transition their Mac lineup specifically from PowerPC to Intel processors? That is your trivia question for the week. And also, speaking of transitions, isn't it kind of... I'll notice this super smooth transition, by the way. Uh, has anyone noticed how, like, ever since, like, ChatGPT, like, kind of came onto the scenes, it seems like every every day and every week and... Yeah, I guess basically, you know, all the time there's like some news story about how AI is being integrated into this, that, and the other thing. Like, it's kind of crazy how literally within the span of, like, when did ChatGPT first break onto the scene? Like, November, I think, something like that. So, like, you know, within the course of a few months, like, AI has just kind of exploded everywhere. And one thing that is actually kind of interesting is the the fact that if you have any kind of like gpu from like the past i don't know five ish six years or something that has like around eight ish gigs of video memory you can basically run some of these models uh that are being used in your like at your house like in your home lab which is kind of crazy um, I saw Craft Computing did a video this week on uh, basically running your own stable diffusion. I think that's what it's called. Uh, basically a, an AI-generated art image thing. And it was pretty cool. And um, 
I don't really have much GPU hardware to work with. That's like one thing that my home lab lacks. Uh, but what what is really cool is like you can download pre-trained models so you don't have to do any of the training yourself but then you could also take one of the models that's already pre-trained and you can like add your own data like add your own images and create like a new model with your new images or whatever so say you uh wanted it to generate images of you you could upload uh images of yourself to this model which by the way is hosted at your house so you don't have to worry about it going to the spooky scary cloud um so and then you can have you know this ai model generate images of you like doing you know crazy things uh, obviously it's going to depend on the quality of your images um like basically how many you, how many you have quantity quality and also like different angles of your face and different lighting situations um, so obviously your results are going to vary, but I thought it, it, it's definitely really cool, um, that if you have, you know, a semi-modern GPU, uh, you can basically run some of these models, um, at your house for fun and not have to worry about any kind of accounts or worry about your personal data being harvested or any of that nonsense. Um, now speaking of personal data and all that stuff and how to protect it, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, uh, it's, it's, it's also on the same vein of like protecting your accounts and whatnot. So this week's cybersecurity tip is wherever possible, you should always be enabling either two-factor or some kind of multi-factor authentication. And specifically, if you can, use a dedicated authenticator app, um, something like Duo or OctaVerify or I think Google Authenticator is another one. There's, there's plenty of them out there. Uh, but I would recommend using a dedicated authenticator app or some kind of like RSA token key thing or YubiKey or some other like device that isn't SMS. Now, if SMS is all that's offered and that's all you can do, I mean, that's better than nothing, and you should definitely take advantage of that. But if you can, I would personally stay away from SMS for a few reasons. Uh, one of them being that SMS isn't encrypted, so anyone that could intercept your SMS codes coming through the airwaves would be able to see them. Now, in all, in all honesty, the the likelihood of a man in the middle, some hacker tr getting, one, getting your password, which you should have strong passwords anyway, um, getting your password and somehow managing to intercept your SMS message, granted that is very, very low, but if they did, the SMS message wouldn't be encrypted, so they would be able to have the code. Um, another reason kind of in that same vein, is if you ever lose your phone number, your phone number gets stolen, or for whatever reason you get a new number, you kind of lose access to your SMS. So if you're in the case where your number gets stolen, um, whoever steals your phone number now has access to all of your SMS codes that get sent to you. Um, so that's obviously not good. Um, and if you get a new number then un until you go through the process of going into all of your 
apps and changing your settings to be your new phone number, um, it's going to go to the old one. <laughs> so that's obviously not good. And then obviously if you lose your number somehow, then you're not going to be able to get your SMS messages for verification. Um, and the other, and the kind of, I guess, the final reason that I want to touch on is the fact that you kind of have to have reception to uh, do SMS. Now, granted, most places you're going to be, you probably have reception because in most cases, if you're logging into an account, most likely you have some kind of internet access of some kind and therefore would be able to receive SMS. But if for whatever reason you're kind of working in an offline situation and you don't have internet access for whatever reason, uh, you're not going to get your two-factor code because you can't get SMS. Whereas if you have a dedicated app or you have like a YubiKey or an RSA token or something like that, that can work offline and you don't have to worry about having any kind of connection. So if you can, use an authenticator app and definitely be using some kind of two-factor or multi-factor authentication to make sure you keep all of your accounts secure. Now, going back to the AI stuff before we get into the nerdy stuff I was up to this week, I'm not sure if you saw, but Microsoft announced new Bing which, by the way, Microsoft, I know you're not listening to this podcast, but if you are, that is a terrible name. I mean, come on, New Bing? I mean, wow. A-plus to the marketing department on that one. Uh, but basically, they announced uh, they're essentially integrating ChatGPT into Bing now. So you can, like, um, when you search for something, you'll get... Uh, in addition to your generic search results, you'll also get like a, a little thing on the side of the search results from, you know, whatever they're calling their chat, their new Bing, I guess, um, kind of giving you more details on that. And then you, there's also going to be like a chat feature similar to chat GPT, uh, because if you weren't aware, Microsoft has dumped literally billions of dollars, that's billions with a B, into OpenAI in their ChatGPT program to the point where I think they dumped like something like $10 billion and part of the agreement was they get like so much percent of the revenue until they recoup all that cost and then even after that they still own like a 49% stake in the company or something like that. It's a crazy deal. Um, but yeah, Microsoft's been really really dumping money into OpenAI and integrated integrating ChatGPT into Bing. And that has got Google absolutely losing their minds and freaking out and going into full panic mode. So I think it was like the day after Microsoft kind of did their keynote thing or whatever, un unveiling new Bing, where they had all these demos showing it in action and all this stuff. Google tried to bounce back and hit back with their version which was kind of a disaster and they tried to do a live demo but uh the phone got quote-unquote misplaced so they couldn't do the live demo right um and <laughs> I, I believe they ended up losing like a hundred billion dollars yeah a hundred 
billion again with a B, a hundred billion dollars in one day because of how big of a flop this thing was. So Google uh, definitely having a rough go here uh, with Microsoft potentially hitting hard in the search search game, which with how big of a an industry search is, like how big of a market that is, and with Google's dominance, Google losing any significant amount of market share in the search industry is going to be a huge hit to their business, especially when you consider the fact that Google essentially has a total monopoly on search, um, so much so that literally... The phrase just Google it or go Google it has been literally, you know, just become the saying of to look something up online. Now, I always try my best whenever referring to looking something up online is to just say you can look it up online or use your search engine of choice and not specifically name Google to potentially not entice anyone to use it because I personally... I honestly can't tell you the last time I used Google. I haven't used it in a long time, and honestly, I don't miss it. And I've even heard from some people that have said Google's gotten worse over time. Beca- and and their, their reasoning for it is because part of it is because of how Google's you know business model works is they kind of thrive on the fact of like AdSense revenue. So, like, companies paying them to get higher up search results, so your search results might not necessarily be as relevant. Plus the fact that the more time you spend on Google searching things, that means you see more ads, and therefore Google makes more money. So if you find your result really quick, get it immediately, and then don't use Google anymore for a while, that's money Google is losing out on. Um, So some people kind of thinking that might be a a factor. Um, But regardless, the fact that Google has such a massive monopoly, any hit to that market share is going to be a big hit to their business. Um, So who knows? Is this Google really the end of Google's reign as top dog in the search industry? I I guess only time will tell, but... It should be uh, interesting to see how this plays out uh, in the coming months and, and years, how, how all this goes with the incorporation of AI into search. So we shall see. Now let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So I didn't make any more updates to my distributed compiler, mainly because I've been kind of sidetracked with other things, as we'll get into in a little bit here. Um but I think it's basically done. Really, the only things that I want to do to it now is make write some more documentation on it, kind of polish that up a little bit, and then just add more examples to it um, of programs compiling with the distributed compiler just to kind of show how it works. Because um, right now I have, like, two programs, except it's basically the same program, just one uses Windows and one uses macOS slash Linux. Um, So I kind of want to get some other examples, maybe in some other programming languages, just to kind of show how it works and that kind of thing. But one of the reasons why I didn't really work on it that much is if you remember to back to last episode, I talked about wanting to make an iOS app for that um 
that that basically has a client for the the server I made, which will basically just keeps track of how many more days I have left in grad school. So I was working on that app a good chunk of this week, um, and I spent more time than I'd care to admit, um, kind of at somewhere in the ballpark between an hour and an hour and a half, wondering why my networking on the iOS app wasn't working. And turns out um, I'm just a complete idiot and I didn't have my phone on the correct Wi-Fi network. So I was on a I was on one network and my server was on another network and my phone can't talk to the other network. So <laughs> I couldn't connect to it and that's why my networking wasn't working. So when I figured that out, I audibly told myself that I was an idiot um, because I was. Uh, now, once I got that figured out, the app was basically done. But I didn't want to leave it there, and I over-engineered this thing. So what I then decided to do was overcomplicate things and added core data into the iOS app. So basically what this allows me to do is if I if I close out of the app or I don't have connection to the server, it'll just display the last time it's it's the last known time so like basically the last time it checked in with the server so to basically say um time remaining as of and then the timestamp of when it last reached out to the server and got the timestamp and then it'll have the time printout of how much time is remaining um so that's what the core data allowed me to do um but apparently sometime between the last time i worked with core data which was when I created my uh, Snapchat database app, which, by the way, I realized uh, there was a bug in there with the new iOS 16 version for whatever reason. It, it was working fine before, and then Apple changed some stuff, and then it kind of broke, so I had to make a change because... Tan going on a tangent here. Uh, <laughs> the So basically, if, if you've never used the Snapchat database, which I guarantee almost no one has because it's, one, it's not on the App Store, and two, it's on my GitHub, which not a lot of people get, which, by the way, it is my most forked project, which isn't saying saying much because it's my only forked project, but it has two forks on it, which is kind of cool. Uh, but the, for whatever reason, it was working fine. So like when you would add like new chats to the database, you could like view them all in a list and they'd be sorted from most recent at the top to oldest at the bottom. And for whatever reason, Apple changed some stuff on their end and it was fine. And then when you add a chat to the, the database, that screen would just go to black rather than yellow for whatever reason. Um, so I had to fix that. So that's been fixed. Uh, so I did also did that this week. Um, so I pushed that update, uh, new release version. Um, I think it's like 1.1.3, I think is the number that I pu published. Uh, I don't know. Um, so if you're interested in checking that out, you can. It's on my GitHub, uh, Dark Assassin 23 over there on GitHub. Um, but anyway, back to this app. So between when I initially made that Iowa or Snapchat database app and this week, Apple changed how core data was implemented with like the GUI stuff and I 
that was a nightmare. So after, essentially after fighting with that for probably a good seven hours or so, maybe a little more, I don't, I don't remember. It was like two in the morning by the time I finally got it working. So that, that probably didn't help that I was up so late. But anyway, um, it's super hacky on the back end and the front end is, let's just say it's functional. Is it pretty? No. But then again, I'm not the guy that's great at making user interfaces. And I've mentioned that multiple times. That anything graphics related, that that ain't my thing. I, I have no artistic ability, so basically any interface that I make is just super basic and super simple and just gets the job done. Ain't not necessarily the prettiest looking thing, but it gets the job done. Now, to say that this app is held together with chewing gum and duct tape would honestly probably be an insult to those feats of engineering that are actually held together with chewing gum and duct tape. So I think a better way to say how this app is held together is on a wing and a prayer because it's pretty rough. But also, if you know anything about Swift, you'll know that on a wing and a prayer is actually a great double meaning because of the mascot that Swift has, which is like some kind of bird thing. So it, it just makes the analogy even better that it's being held together on a wing and a prayer, kind of, sort of, literally. Um, but in case you also didn't know that modern programming languages nowadays, they they a lot of them have mascots. So like Python obviously has the Python, Rust has the crab or has a crab or as People that program in Rust say it's a rustation, kind of like a play on the word of crustation, but rust. Sorry, I killed that for you. Anyone out there that loves rust? Uh, Go has a gopher. Pearl has a camel. PHP has an elephant. But unfortunately, C and C++, Fortran, and all those other dinosaur languages, uh, they aren't cool enough or new enough to uh, have mascots of themselves. I've heard that heard stories about people wanting to like retroactively give them one, like specifically C and C++, but I don't know if that's that's ever actually happened. Um, but regardless, the app works now. So, <laughs> you know, I, it is what it is. Um, but I will say, I did have one of you fellow assassins reach out to me about this, um, specifically the the theory in general of having a, a server that'll send send back the time remaining on something, um, and they mentioned that it would could be a good idea to basically convert this server client thing and just kind of make it a universal, uh, just mark it as like a universal countdown timer thing, which. That now that I think about it, you know, it, it's actually a pretty great idea, and honestly, wouldn't take that much effort on my part to make it a universal thing, because as it stands right now, literally all I'd have to do is change my server to read in a config file rather than hard code values in there. <laughs> which is how it currently is. So I could literally just have it read in a config file and it would have, you know, whatever time that you want and then it could just spit out, you know, the time remaining that way. And then on the client end, for like the Windows and Mac OS Linux clients, 
that could also be a config file with like the server's IP and port number. And then the iOS app, that could also be pretty easy. You just add another entry into the core data and then you have like a, a new pane or new window or something that you like even a pop-up or something that uh, you can manually enter the, the settings for the, the server's IP and port number. So it'd be pretty trivial to do. And you know, now that I'm actually kind of like thinking about this and walking it through, that might actually be something I do and, you know, publish on my GitHub as a, uh, you know, just a universal app countdown timer thing that someone can use if they, they want to. So yeah. Also in other news, uh, my home lab has been infected with malware. Okay, not really, but uh, <laughs> so basically what happened this week was one of the uh, grad school classes I'm in, they're making us use a VM for something. Um, it's basically to do like Hadoop stuff, which if you're not familiar with, with Hadoop, it's, it's, it's like a distributed file system type thing. So this virtual machine kind of like more or less simulates how that works, I guess. Um, but anyway, it, I initially installed it on my Mac Mini, and uh, needless to say, the Mac Mini was was chugging hard. <laughs> it was it was having a rough go. Um, it its fans were maxed out the entire time. Things were getting pretty slow, which made sense because I had no free available RAM, and I think I was using like over four gigs worth of swap. So yeah, big yikes. So then what I decided to do was, it was mainly an experiment at first, was can I move this to one of my hypervisors with that has more horsepower and more RAM? So that's what I tried to do, convert it, convert the VM disk and move it over. And just to prove the point of how chunky this thick boy of a VM is, this absolute unit of a VM, when I just putting it on the hypervisor that I have, and mind you, this is like a, like an enterprise server, but just the fact of it existing on that server, idling, made the server's fans ramp up a little bit. Not a lot, but it made them ramp up a little bit. And then whenever I'd actually do stuff in the VM, like running like, you know, programs it like to execute things with the Hadoop file system, the the fans got going. <laughs> uh, so it, it was definitely using the processing power. So I guess on the one hand, it's good that I was able to, you know, I have the home lab that I can, you know, utilize for. But on the other hand, uh, wasting resources on a VM that I don't even want on there. Um, so kind of, you know, in the spirit of what malware is, it's like unwanted. It, in one vein, it's like unwanted software. I, I guess technically the software isn't malicious, although you could argue it is malicious because it's um, using CPU and memory resources that uh, I didn't necessarily intend on it to give, and it's just kind of using hogging those resources. But Honestly, it's it's powered off now, and the only time I am going to power it up is when I absolutely need to use it. Um, otherwise, it is going to be off. But I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, but now let's get into the pros and cons of being a software development software developer, and kind of give you some of my uh, my experiences and my my kind of list here on if you should be 
a software developer. Now, I want to start off this with kind of the the business kind of in the business world so everyone knows like you know being a software developer like writing code and making projects and all that stuff but if you actually want to be a software developer as your profession you kind of need to know what you're getting into once you get into the real world so one i guess the first pro that i'll get into is at least in my experience you have very little meetings which Personally, I'm a big fan of. Um, now, also in my, my experience, I literally have had weeks where the number of meet where I've had coworkers both currently and for and in the past that have literally had more meetings in one day than I have had in an entire week. So yeah, as a software developer, you probably won't be in that many meetings which on the one hand you could think of meetings personally how i view meetings is like getting older so when you aren't in any meetings you kind of feel left out you kind of feel like man i guess i'm not important and i'm never in any of these meetings it's just like when you're young you're like man i just want to be older so i can do stuff and then once you get in all these meetings, you're like, man, I just hate meetings. These meetings are no fun. I want to go back to not having meetings, which is it's like, you know, what happens when you get old, right? When you get old, you, you just want to be young again. You don't want to be old. You want to you want to be like you were back back in your heyday, right? When you could do stuff. Now you're old and you can't do all the things that you used to. Um but, I mean, from the software developer perspective, if you think about it, if you're stuck in meetings all day, who's going to write the code? Because your job is literally to write code. So if you're in meetings all day, that takes away from your time that you can actually, you know, be doing your job. So another thing that I've kind of noticed is, you know, days where... I don't have any meetings, and I'm like, man, I really kind of, you know, missing out not having any meetings. And then I'll have a day where I have, I say a lot, but compared to other people, it really honestly isn't that many. But when I have more meetings in a day, I realize how unproductive I was that day in the sense of like, I really didn't get to write much code at all. So... But I mean, let, let, let's let's take a step back here. So if you think about it, if you keep the software developers from writing the code, who's going to write the code? Because it sure as heck ain't going to be the marketing department, not going to be sales, and definitely ain't going to be HR. So if no one writes the code, then there's nothing to market, and there's nothing to sell, and you don't have... A business anymore so if you ask me best to leave the software devs alone leave us alone at our desks with our two liter bottles of Mountain Dew Doritos with our headphones in um, and doing what we do best turning into code monkeys and click clacking away on our keyboards so just just leave us be leave us off in our corners or or wherever and uh, allow us to do what we do um, but in all seriousness, um, yeah, you probably won't have many meetings. In 
in all reality, you'll probably, you'll have, you know, the, the mandatory meetings that everyone has to go to, like your, your all hands meetings. So like everyone, like if any, if you're, I don't know, your team, if they have like all hands meetings, or if your company has an all hands meeting or any meeting that like everyone has to go to, you'll probably have to go to those. And then any kind of like stand-ups you have uh, especially if you're doing any kind of like agile or scrum kind of development you'll probably have some kind some number of stand-ups whether that's daily stand-ups or weekly stand-ups or some kind of you know quick meeting about hey what you're working on um, anything you're struggling with anything anyone can help out with um, do we need to update tasking to assign someone else something because they're way ahead or do we need to pull resources to help out this developer over here because they're struggling to implement you know x feature or you know whatever the case may be uh, but generally i mean those meetings aren't more than like 30 minutes tops um, i know from some of my experience kind of in a an agile environment environment like that i think we had like daily uh stand-ups like that and I think they were scheduled to be 30 minutes, but I think probably like seven times out of 10, they were done in like 10 or 15 minutes, uh, which is nice because then you get that time back so you can go back to doing what you do as a software developer, which is write code and do programming and, you know, develop software. Um, so yeah, that's the meetings aspect. Now going into one of the cons here, um, rip your free time. Um, you probably won't have much uh, because any software developer worth their salt has personal programming projects and usually a lot of them. Now, if you're asking yourself and, and I mean, you've heard me mention a lot on this podcast of how many personal projects I'm working on and how many personal projects I've completely neglected because I found another shiny new personal project that I wanted to work on and completely ignored all my other ones. Um, so you might be asking yourself, how many personal projects should I have? Which, that's actually a pretty terrible question because it's really hard to say and give an exact number on how many you should have because it's kind of hard to quantify how many you have since sometimes you might be like super in you know to one field one thing and one personal project but other times you'll kind of be branching out all over the place and doing all kinds of different projects uh, but my personal recommendation is if you don't need to hire your own personal dev team to help you keep up with all your personal projects so they don't go neglected you probably don't have enough of them um, and to uh, quote Matthew McConaughey here, if you don't have enough personal projects to the point where you need a uh, personal development team just to keep up with them. I got to pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. Yeah. So kind of rookie numbers. You got to get them up. Uh, got to come up with some more projects. Now, the other reason I say this is because you you won't have free time because one... If you have a job, there's 40 hours of your week gone, eight hours a day, and that's assuming you're not staying late, working overtime on projects because, you know, kind of going off on a little tangent here, there are many times as a software developer 
where you will be working on code and you can't figure something out and you just want to figure it out because until you figure it out, you're not going to be satisfied. So this will often lead you to working well past when you were supposed to get off work, which if you're a salaried employee, it doesn't matter. Um, but if, if you're like an hourly employee, like working as like an intern or something, this could potentially be a problem. But the, the thing is, if you've ever worked on personal projects or worked on software development in a professional environment, you know that you want to finish if you if you want to finish a feature or a task or something. You don't want to leave bugs in the code. You don't want to leave it not able to compile. You don't want to leave it unfinished. You want to finish what you are working on. So this could often, you know, especially if you're trying to implement something near the end of the day, which is generally not a good idea if you want to leave work on time. <laughs> um, often you'll end up staying late and working later until you can figure that feature out. Not because you have to stay late, but just because you want to stay late because if you don't figure it out, you're going to be thinking about it for the rest of the day and rest of the evening until you can get back in the next morning and work on it. Now, Sometimes you might run into the thing where, you know, you go home and then you'll be like cooking dinner or, you know, taking a shower, getting ready for bed or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then the solution will hit you and then you'll be mad at yourself because these, the idea hit you, but you can't implement it because your computer's back at the office and you can't do anything. So that's always kind of aggravating. Uh, but back to the free time aspect. So you have that aspect that you might be working late. So you all, but you also have a job. And then as we already established, you should have personal projects. So you have personal projects you want to work on. And then God forbid that you're an idiot or, well, I guess not an idiot, but say you're doing grad school because you hate yourself or like me, uh, just kidding. Or, you know, you're, you know, trying to support yourself with this part-time job while you do undergrad full-time or, you know, whatever the case may be, you're doing school, school's going to suck a ton of time out of your life. And then on top of that, if you want to have a social life, which I guess actually we can scratch that last one because we're software developers here and we all know software developers don't have social lives. Um, now, the reason I say that <laughs> is, you know, all the, the normies out there will constantly be posting their updates and their statuses, you know, to Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter. And us software developers, the most social thing that we post is pushing a new change to our public Git repo. Um, or if we're feeling really adventurous, uh, we might write a blog post about our latest personal project that we were working on. Um <laughs> But also, like I said, if you're working on personal projects in your free time, uh, you don't really have time for a social life because you have personal projects you want to work on. So you have so much stuff going on in your life that it's hard to find time just to, you know, sit back, relax, and just be dumb, I guess is kind of what the, the what I'm thinking about. Like, And when I say be dumb, I mean just, you know sit back, relax on the couch doing nothing and watching like 
mind-numbing content, whether that's like a, a funny movie or TV show or something that doesn't require any kind of mental engagement really at all and just kind of enjoying yourself, um, which I have wanted to play video games, but because I don't have any free time because, you know, working, grad school, personal projects, I really haven't played any video games since I got back from vacationing, you know, around the holidays. So that's been, what, over a month at this point? Um, so that's kind of a bummer because I do enjoy video games. I enjoy playing video games. But, you know, when you have all these other things going on in your life, you don't really have free time to uh, enjoy that stuff. So that could be a potential con to why you wouldn't want to be a software developer because free time... Uh, might not exist anymore, um, which is in contrast, I guess, to if like you're a, a marketing person or like in sales or HR, since it's not like, at least to my understanding, it's not like when you're done doing, you know, your sales call. Well, I guess maybe sales you might, but that would just be working overtime. Uh, but like as far as like marketing or HR, it's not like you're going home and, you know, doing more marketing or HR fun stuff in your free time I don't think I mean I guess marketing if you you know have a side hustle maybe like marketing that but I mean aside from that I I, I can't think of anything and like I guess musicians could potentially be in the similar vote because like when you do all your music making stuff for your work maybe you kind of like to go home and play more music in your free time but like yeah I don't I don't know um Let's get into some, some other pros, though. So another pro would be the potential amount of money you can make. Now, software developers are pretty high in demand, and they generally make pretty good money. Um, now, one thing that I think needs to be addressed, though, is a lot of software development positions take place in or around cities, which have a higher cost of living than other parts of the country. So on the face of it, yes, you'll probably be making a lot more than, you know, other professions, but you also have to take into account where you're going to be living and cost of living, right? So if you're if you have a software development gig, you know, in the middle of nowhere making I don't know, 80 grand, let's say, versus, you know, a software development gig out in, you know, Silicon Valley making like 120, you're probably going to have more money in your pocket at the end of the month, uh, working in the middle of Podunk Nowhere, only making 80 rather than making the 120. So that's one thing that you kind of do have to take into consideration. But in general, uh, software developers do make pretty good money, all things considered, compared to other professions. Um, another pro would be generally you have pretty flexible hours because as we kind of mentioned with the meetings aspect you don't really have a ton of meetings so if you don't have to be in meetings all the time that are at set specific times you can more or less kind of work at your own schedule I mean obviously you're going to need your you know manager or supervisor's approval for things uh, so it's not like I don't know necessarily how much they'd approve if you 
you know, kind of the stereotypical, you know, software developer, you know, they roll in at like 10 or noon or something, and then they're gone by like, you know, I don't know, three in the afternoon or something like that. So super short days. Um, so obviously, that's probably not going to fly. Uh, but because you're not necessarily tied to, you know, set times for meetings and stuff, you can kind of sort of ish set your own schedule. Because at the end of the day, when it, when it comes down to it for software development, as long as you're completing, you know, the tasks that are assigned to you within your time window, I mean, in reality, it doesn't matter if you are able to complete that in two hours or if you take, like, you know, 40 hours. I mean, it really, as long as you're getting the work done you need to get done, I mean, that's really all that matters. So, um, and because of... And then if you finish early, I mean, you can pull more tasks off the, the, the board or, you know, however you're managing, you know, the tasks and features that need to be implemented in, say, like a given sprint, for example. Um, so, I mean, as long as you're getting your work done, that's really what all that matters. So you can generally have more flexibility in your working hours. Plus, because, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in a ton of meetings, kind of building off that point, Um there's generally a lot more flexibility with software developers as far as like working from home, working remote type stuff. Uh, because, you know, as long as you have, you know, a VPN connection to your company's, into your company's network, which you theoretically should, um, and you can access all the Git repos and everything, you can literally work wherever you want. And then you just, you know, check your code into the Git repo, pull down the changes that you need, do all your development wherever you want. You could work from home. You could work at Starbucks, Panera, the park, you know, wherever you want. Um, now, obviously, you know, some companies will make you come into the office. And, you know, it, it's honestly kind of nice to be in the office sometimes, especially uh, for any new developers out there. Uh, if you Even if you do have the option to work remote, I would honestly still recommend that you go into the office, mainly because from my personal experience, I found that um, working remote as a software developer is nice, and I really enjoy it, but at the same time, when you're new and you don't necessarily have a ton of experience on the products you're working on, it can be really frustrating not being able to just walk down the hall or go to the next cube over and ask someone a question about something and how something works. Um, so it can definitely be kind of frustrating in that regard, but it is nice that you have that that flexible work schedule. Um, now, some other cons here. Um, we kind of talked about some of them. Um, you know, the, the whole work-life balance can be an issue. Um, potentially high stress depending on how many developers are on your team and what your deadlines are. Um, I know especially like game developers, um, they'll, you know, before deadlines or whatever, like I've heard many horror stories about game developers that they, they pretty much don't leave the office and are pretty much working like 80 plus hour weeks, like right before a game is supposed to launch, making sure that all the bugs are ironed out and everything like it, it can get pretty gnarly. Um, and as we mentioned, you know, 
long working hours, which potentially could be self-inflicted, um, depending on, you know, how long it, how, how long it can take you to, um, you know, potentially figure out bugs or fix compile errors and, you know, kind of get your code in a working state before you leave for the day. Um, so potentially long hours. Um, but going back to some other pros though, um, Software development is generally at the cutting edge, um, unless you work for the government, but that's just because the government's slow at anything technology-related. I mean, look at Congress, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, generally, though, software development is on the cutting edge of technology, the, the latest and greatest, um, which is definitely nice if you're into technology, for sure. Um, some other pros is... You know, if you have a problem, you can come up with a solution for it, right? Like if if you have something in your life like that isn't optimized and you want a, want a tool to do something for you to make your life easier, you can build that tool. If you're a, if you have the knowledge as a software developer, you can write a tool to do literally whatever you want to, you know, automate tasks for yourself to, you know, in my case, one thing that I wanted to do was I wanted a, a tool that can help me better manage SSH connections because, which I had this, I made the, initially made the tool before I, you know, got super into the home lab stuff, but especially now, like, it's kind of overwhelming to have that many different SSH connections. So just to have a tool to manage all of that. And I mean, so what, what did I do? I wrote a tool to do that. Right. Um, so kind of, that's kind of where like, I guess the personal projects come into it. Um, but the, the cool thing about, you know, being a software developer in that regard is if there's a problem that needs to be solved, on a computer or on the internet or on your phone or literally anything in the, you know, computer sphere, I guess, if you will, if there's a problem or something that you think should be fixed or made better, if you're a software developer, you can literally make that happen. And what's, what's even better about that is depending on what solution you're solving with your software, you could literally jumpstart your own career doing that, whether, and you could potentially, you know, make your own business, you know, doing that, make your own small business, you know, with this one software product that you make and, you know, really cash in on it and be set for life. Um, now, granted, that's the chances of that happening probably aren't necessarily super high, but I mean, it is a possibility if you come up with, you know, the next great idea. Like I, I can almost guarantee, I bet you that, you know, back in the day, like, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg, you know, was making Facebook, right? Like I, I kind of doubt that, you know, he thought that it was, if you asked him where, if he thought that, you know, he would be, you know, the CEO of a multi-billion-dollar company and essentially be a dominant force um, in the internet and you know in the world. Back when he first created you know Facebook in college, he, I, I, I don't know, it is Mark Zuckerberg, but he, I would think that he probably wouldn't. He probably wouldn't have foreseen that he'd be where he is where he is today. 
And there's a lot of other like, you know, tech startup things like that, where if you ask them, you know, X years ago, if they thought they would be where they were today, they would say no. Um, so don't let that stand in your way, obviously. Um, but it is definitely something, you know, to keep in mind that if you come up with an idea as a software developer to solve a problem, you could potentially make a career out of that and live pretty nicely because of it. Um, so yeah, those are some of the, some of the pros and cons that, that I kind of came up with, um, you know, through my almost 10 years experience as a software developer. Um, so, but I think the, the biggest takeaway that you have to consider, um, is the potential free time and, you know, long hours that you might have to be putting in, um, is that worth, you know, the, the, you know, potentially higher pay? And on the other hand, you know, you do have some more flexibility potentially with your work schedule, but, you know, you might have to work longer and you might not really have free time because you get sucked up in your own projects and, you know, it is what it is. But um, another thing, I guess, that's kind of sort of unrelated, just kind of a, a fun, fun thing is, if you become a software developer, you become multilingual very quickly. Now, a lot of people don't recognize you as multilingual because for whatever reason, they don't view computer programming languages as real languages, which uh, in my opinion, with how dominant computers are and how high in demand software developers are, you kind of need to know computer programming languages to be able to you know, write software to tell computers what to do. Um, so for any colleges and universities out there, uh, I would recommend, well, I wish uh, that you would make um, any kind of computer science classes where you learn programming languages count towards any kind of language requirements because you essentially are learning a language. Um, you're Granted, you're learning a computer language but, you know, with how, you know, crucial software is, you know, to our modern day, uh, we need people that know computer languages and are really good at them. Um, because I have seen in my career as a software developer, I have seen some pretty terrible looking code, um, both syntactically and just functionally how it works. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, now, granted, I have written some p pretty terrible code in my day, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, that uh, the iOS app I made was super hacked together, and I'm not exactly super proud of it, um, but also, I have written some code for uh, <clears throat> that uh, one college class last semester um, that was literally some of the most disgusting code I ever wrote, and I'm quite honestly ashamed that I had to write it. Uh, but, you know, all that to be said... Um, do I still think that everyone should be a software developer? Obviously not, because, you know, some people, it sometimes, you know, as, as good as you can explain things to, you know, some people, some, while they can understand, like, some of the high-level concepts, some people just aren't cut out to be software developers at the end of the day. Just like I am not cut out to be a, um, a, a fast food restaurant or basically anything customer service related. I, I don't, you know, deal with people that well. 
Um, now, I might come off on this podcast as someone that's pretty sociable and outgoing, but uh, that is completely the complete opposite couldn't be further from the truth um if you actually know me personally um i'm pretty the pretty pretty i don't know if i'd say a shy guy but you know definitely a, a very much an introvert when it comes to interacting with people and the less interaction with random people i can have the better so it all obviously makes software development perfect for me uh because i can just kind of sit at my desk or at my house or wherever write my code, not have to deal with a lot of people, and it's great. Uh, but some people, you know, they like the interaction, which you can, you know, be an extrovert and be a software developer, for sure. Um, but also, like, you know, other fields that I would be terrible at, uh, biology, definitely a no for me. Um, I definitely probably couldn't be any kind of, like, anything in the medical field. Definitely not. Um, so like, I mean, there are, are fields that, you know, some people are just cut out for and they're good for, uh, good at, I guess. Um, which is same thing with software development. Some people are just, just naturally good at it. Some people, they'll spend hours and hours trying to pour everything they have into trying to learn it and they, it just doesn't click. And that's okay. Like not everyone has to be a software developer. Not everyone is a software developer, uh, because we need people in the other fields too, uh, to make the to make the world work, um, but definitely if you have any kind of interest in technology, computers, um, artificial intelligence, literally anything technology related, I think software development um, could be a good field for you. And and even just in a general sense, um, I think just kind of having any sort of background that you can get in software development, even if you don't make it your career. Um, just kind of having a knowledge of how, at least at a conceptual level, how software development works and kind of what goes into software development and, you know, kind of how programs work behind the scenes, just to kind of have an appreciation for, you know, how it works, for one. Um, and also, it, it can help you troubleshoot things too, right? Because even though you might not be a software developer by trade, say you work in marketing or HR or sales or you work as a teacher or a nurse or whatever, you're going to be using software in your day-to-day -day life, regardless of what profession you're in, whether you write it or not. You're going to be using software. So if you have an idea, a general idea of how software works, and potentially some of the concepts that go into the software product that could help you if you're whatever software you use in your job, whether you're HR and working in, you know, some kind of like time sheet things or uh, you're a nurse and you're, you know, trying to look through uh, databases on patients or what, or I don't know. Uh, but if you ever run into a problem with that software, if you kind of have a, you know, maybe a general idea of, how software works, how what goes into making good software, it may or may not help you, um, you know, kind of debug potential issues with software. Uh, plus, as a software developer, one thing that is super key is obviously when you're writing software, you're not going to catch every bug, and if you are able to, if you find a bug 
in our code as software developers if you out there find a bug in you know in a, in a program the more articulate you can be and the better you can describe where that bug is how it happens and all that good stuff the easier it is for us as software developers to fix that so even if you don't have any interest in being a software developer or you're not good at software development or anything like that at least kind of knowing how it works can help you in in cases where you find bugs in in software you use you can be able to better articulate okay what did i do to have this bug pop up does it always pop up what kind of conditions make it come up um is there are, are there any problems when it does pop up or is it just kind of like a, a glitch kind of a thing the more specific you can be and the the better you can articulate how to recreate it the quicker the developers are going to be able to patch it figure it out fix it you know all that good stuff and get the issue resolved um so that was i guess kind of another tangent i thought we were kind of wrapping this up but then i just kind of kept going for a few more minutes um <laughs> but yeah at the end of the day um should you be a software developer that's up to you obviously i i recommend it even with all of its its cons of potential long hours and potential not much free time um it is definitely in my opinion a very very rewarding job um especially being able to see software you know in some cases literally start at nothing and be built up through the course of you know the whole software development process to become this great thing um, that you can see, you know, people using and enjoying. And honestly, as someone, you know, like I mentioned, as an introvert, you know, being able to see people enjoy a product that you made and that you just poured your heart and soul into, like coding and building, seeing people enjoy that is just just makes it all worth it. So it's, in my opinion, it's definitely a very rewarding job, even if there are many times that I feel like I'm beating my head against a wall or want to throw my computer out a window. Um, at the end of the day, it, it definitely, in my opinion, is very rewarding, even with the, the shortcomings and, and cons that it, at it, that it has. Um, so, but before we wrap up, uh, we got to get it into that trivia question. So the trivia question for this week is, when did Apple transition from PowerPC to Intel? So when did Apple transition their Mac line specifically from PowerPC to Intel? Now, I'll accept two answers here. If you said 2006, you are correct, because 2006 is when the first Macs uh, with Intel processors shipped. Now, if you said 2005, I'll, I'll, I'll still accept that mainly because that's when they announced that they'd be transitioning from PowerPC to Intel. They announced it at their 2005 WWDC event. Um, but they didn't start shipping out Macs with Intel processors until 2006. So, well, technically they did announce in 2005 they didn't ship till 2006. So if you said either one of those answers, I'll give it to you. Congrats. Uh, good job. 
Um, so if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you leave it a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Also, be sure to share with a friend or family member, especially if you have anyone you know potentially trying to figure out what they want to do with their life or any one potentially thinking they might want to be a software developer, definitely going to want to send this episode to them. And if you have any questions about this episode or any comments um, or topics you want me to answer in a future episode, or if you just have any feedback like we talked about uh, this one fellow assassin had for me this episode, you can shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. As always, there's a link in the show notes for that that you can click on to send me an email. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.